we developed a program called Doors to Diplomacy, which the U.S. State Department funded for 10 years. Uh, it was middle school and high school students. And the idea was to look at global issues where you might have a different point of view depending on what part of the world you lived in. So you might feel differently you know, if you were in San Diego about water quality than you might if you lived in Tijuana and so on and so on. So the idea was to take these uh, issues that could be slightly controversial, environmental issues, leadership issues, whatever they happen to be, and then present as much as possible different points of view and then maybe make suggestions as to how do we go forward how do we address these issues what are some ways and i mean this is where the world is right now you know you can't watch the news for five minutes where you don't have you know opposing points of view and compromise has sort of become a not cool thing for whatever reason it's like people dig their heels in and it's got to be this or this there's no middle ground but that's not realistic so teaching students, young people, skills on how to look at different perspectives beyond their own is enormously rewarding and useful. And uh, yeah, I would say that one of the biggest reasons to do this is to connect people that they may not have come in contact with to do some sort of a project together where they can learn more about those people, that culture, that community, that population. People with different backgrounds and upbringings and who live in different parts of the world, well, it turns out they have differing perspectives on big and important issues. This isn't a particularly crazy or revolutionary point to make, I'm sure. And yet, as you just heard this episode's guest mention, we increasingly seem to live in a world where the connective technologies we use, rather than bridging our cultural and ideological gaps, they seem to instead be solidifying them. So what gives? Why has the internet become a place for disagreement and discord rather than communication and collaboration? Honestly, I'm not really sure, but I do know this. There are people who have spent their careers fighting against that, and we've got one of the best and most accomplished right here on this episode. In fact, she's even in the Internet Hall of Fame thanks to her pioneering work around collaborative global education. She is Dr. Yvonne Marie Andres, founder and executive director of Global Schoolnet. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters, the entrepreneurship and business podcast that shares stories from the internet's most impactful innovators. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. While pulling together these Webmasters episodes, I'm usually focused on the entrepreneurship side of my work. The teaching stuff I do, maybe not so relevant. However, on this episode, we're gonna have a nice bit of crossover because our guest, Dr. Yvonne Marie Andres, is one of the world's first online educators and a true e-learning pioneer. That seems particularly relevant these days as more and more learning is moving online. There are, in other words, enormous opportunities in the e-learning space. We're gonna talk about some of them, but first, I'm gonna take a minute to tell you about this podcast's sponsor. 
Webmasters wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like content websites, e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, and any other types of profitable online work from anywhere internet businesses you can think of. If you've got a business like that and you're thinking of selling it, be sure to contact the team at Latonas. Their experienced brokers can walk you through the process and work alongside you to help get you the best deal possible. Alternately, if you're interested in buying an internet business, Latonas can help you too. They've constantly got listings for new businesses they're selling. Find all of them and keep tabs on any new listings just by heading over to their website. It's latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. In the 2020s, the idea of having a class online probably doesn't seem too strange. Maybe you've taken a digital course or two, or maybe you've been forced into a Zoom classroom. Online learning certainly isn't the norm, but it's also not exactly wild or crazy. But what if I told you someone was helping facilitate those same kinds of educational experiences in the 1980s, 40 years before that? Well, there was someone. She's the guest on this very episode of Webmasters. She was a public school teacher in California in the 80s when she got her first computer in her classroom, and she had to figure out what to do with it. So it was a very long time ago, back in California uh, in the 80s, Apple decided to give every school in California one single computer. And I was teaching elementary school. And so the way it worked is that computer was rotated from classroom to classroom, no training, almost no software. And one day that computer showed up in my classroom, just in a box. And my sixth grade student said, uh, what is that? And I said, I do you believe that's a computer? And they said, great, can we open it up? And so we opened it up and basically we learned how to use the computer ourselves, side-by-side learning. And what was the result of those first experiments? How did that propel you forward into the e-learning space? So I saw how motivated they were and I began, based on that, writing some grants to get more computers in the classroom. So we had them there all the time. Computers were, it was very minimal what, what they could do. It was sort of uh, self-contained games, you know, very little memory. What I then discovered was I was teaching very low-achieving students that came from some challenging backgrounds. Some of their parents were in gangs or in prison or just not a great environment. And so I was looking for something to help them build up their self-esteem. And what I learned is kids love an audience. So if I could give them an audience for their work and for their writing, that really inspired them and got them excited. So we began this whole project doing pen pals, the old fashioned way, writing letters, putting them in the mail, sending them to a colleague in England, sending them to England, waiting almost two months to get a return back. But when those letters came, my students were so excited and they couldn't wait to write again. So that was like a clue. Around that time, I personally discovered email and thought, oh, this would be so much easier with email if we could do it through email. So I began looking for other teachers that were interested in working with me on that and uh, ran into a colleague, Al Rogers, who became uh, my partner for 30 years working on this topic. And at the time, he was a teacher uh, down in San Diego. 
and he began working for the County Office of Education. And together we were looking for different technologies that would allow this peer-to-peer writing exchange or collaboration to happen. Wow. So we're talking still early days of the internet, pre-web even. So how are you getting online? What services were you able to access at that time? Yeah. So back in that time, uh, there were different services you could subscribe to. And there was something called CompuServe and there was something called The Source and McGraw-Hill Information Exchange and eventually Prodigy. These were all dial-up services starting at the low end with these things called 300 baud modems which were extremely slow went over a phone line you weren't sending graphics it was all text so but doing it from a school was very challenging most schools only had one or two phone lines into the school and you certainly couldn't use it during the day to be sending writing so again my colleague Al Rogers kind of went out into the um, I'll call it the pirate internet community and found some software that he was able to modify for education. And what it allowed us to do is have the students write their stories or letters on a five and a half inch floppy disk, upload it to an Apple IIe computer in the middle of the night when nobody was using those phone lines, it would send that information to the next location we would determine where that would be. So it could send it from California, where we were, to New York, or from California to New York to Europe. Sometimes it took several days to get there, still a lot faster than postal mail. So that would have been the days of point-to-point networks like BitNet or Usenet, right? It was point-to-point, except that we developed a software called the Fred Mail system, which Fred Mail stood for Free Educational Mail and created a hub that all of the locations that were connected, and at the time it was a combination of uh, K-12 schools and universities and eventually supercomputer centers, all of that information went through this hub and did a sorting type situation and went to their final location. And again, uh, the, the tricky part was you know being able to connect those phone lines usually through the principal's office or through the nurse's office, you know, in the middle of the night when nobody was using those, we called it a store and forward. So it would store it temporarily. And then when nobody was using those phone lines, it would forward it. And how or why did you decide to build your own basically educational emailing network? You know, we didn't really think about it. It was was something that we wanted and needed and it didn't exist. Prior to that, if you wanted to send somebody email They had to be on the same system as you. So if you had CompuServe, they had to have that CompuServe email address. Or if you had uh, the source, they had to have that. And it was expensive for educators, certainly not students and families. Yeah, so we were able to set up the system that stripped away the necessity to have those individual email addresses. So back in those days, if you had a business card, you had like six email addresses, six different ones. And sometimes one person had one and one person had the other. So, you know, there'd have to be somebody in the middle that had both physically push those messages. We were just so excited about the potential and the possibility of connecting educators and students and their communities to do different kinds of collaboration, whether it was parallel problem solving or writing uh, newsletters together or 
just doing research, talking about zoos in New York and zoos in San Diego and zoos in London and zoos in Tokyo and so on, and having kids be able to really expand their world. Textbooks were very limited, still are very limited, the kind of information that you could find. So once we developed this software called Fredmail System, we started to get a lot of attention. Universities thought, well, this works for them. It probably would work great for us. So we got some grants. We got a very nice grant from National Science Foundation to connect the Fredmail network, which at the time was probably about 500 what we call nodes that were run by individual system operators, sysops. Um, many of them were not techie people. They were educators in schools or universities and so on to connect the Fredmail network to the supercomputer center network. That was our first connection from Fredmail to basically the internet, which again, just opened up many, many doors. And you said you'd grown it to 500 schools just on your own. How did you do that? How were you telling people about it and onboarding them? 500 locations, but those are 500 like school districts. So then they serviced however many schools. We called it a node. A node would be like a post office. So a post office in a city services that many people in that city or that community. So each node serviced all the schools in that district or in that region, surrounding region, including internationally. We had a, a colleague from Australia, Greg Butler, who discovered this at one conference, we were talking about it, was so excited, he brought it back to Australia and set up Aussie Fred. And then we had another colleague from South America, another one from Europe and so on, that began bringing this uh, technology to their own location. It was just up to us to find this connection, find a way to connect. So part of it was the technology, you know, being able to connect. Part of it was raising awareness that this was a possibility. And part of it was, well, what are you going to do with it? So we really started to focus on really what is the purpose for collaboration? What kinds of collaboration can you do? And how is that going to enhance the learning experience? Could you talk about that? What's an example of the kinds of collaborative learning that was being enabled by the system in the early days? So we began defining different purposes for collaboration. For example, parallel problem solving. If I want to study the condition of trees in California, there are students in Taiwan that want to do the same thing and students in Russia that want to do the same thing. We would develop an activity where they would go out, they would take pictures, they would describe, you know, how are the trees being affected by fire, insect infestation, drought, human development, that kind of a thing, and then share that information with their counterparts. And just for context, was this all grade school, college? What kinds of students were you primarily focused on working with? I would say that it was from approximately third grade, because that's really where students are starting to be able to write and communicate, and up through high school and then a lot of university students as well. But I would say the most active participation was junior high and, and high school students, because they needed less direction. But again, part of this was in designing the activities. It was never a one-to-one. We never wanted to, to become pen pals. It was always, let's look at some project and see how each of the participants can contribute. What are they going to contribute? And then put that together in some sort of a package that we're sending to the partner classes. Were these things you were doing with students or more so that you were training other educators to do them? 
We've learned obviously a lot and we really try to coach people that want to get involved in this because I like to say it's like throwing a party. You don't want to throw a party if you've never been to a party. You're not going to know all the things that you need to do and plan and and make sure that everybody has a good experience. So when somebody says, you know, I'd love my students to be collaborating with other students, we take them through a series of questions that will help them decide which are the technology tools they're going to use because uh, not everybody has access to all the tools and we want to kind of level the playing field. So what are the tools you're going to use? what troubleshooting is going to be in place because inevitably if you're collaborating with people from uh, different geographic locations something is going to happen either it's going to be weather or technology is going to be down or a different vacation schedule or there's so many things so you have to kind of build that into it and really setting the expectations correctly like what do you want to get out of it what do you want your students to get out of it do you want them to have an audience that's great and that's one thing. Or do you want them to learn from the other students? If it's a cultural thing, how will you know that they've learned what you want them to learn? So we do a big project between American students and Russian students. And uh, going into the project, this is 10 years ago, we discovered that American students knew almost nothing about Russia. What they knew is completely incorrect. And Russian students knew almost nothing about American students. The goal was to really give them a better understanding of the two different cultures and the two different countries. Part of that was exchanging information. Part of it was talking about things that meant something to them, like art or music or clothing or street murals, that kind of a thing. I just want to interject into the story for a moment in order to highlight some of the important educational concepts Yvonne is talking about. Specifically, you've heard Yvonne mention collaboration a lot. Collaborative learning is something experienced educators try to bring into their classes because putting students in conversation with each other is often a more impactful way for them to learn versus, say, having them just read out of textbooks. However, if you're a teacher pre-internet, what kind of collaboration could you really enable? Collaboration basically within your classroom, right? But the internet expands all of that almost infinitely. Suddenly, as an educator, you have the potential to get your students collaborating with other people around the world. That was exactly the opportunity Yvonne recognized earlier than just about any other educator. She recognized the opportunity to enable a new level of global educational collaboration. Collaboration is a very big word that nobody defines the same. So the first thing you have to do is get people to agree on what they mean by collaboration. By doing that, then you can talk about the enhanced benefits of collaboration. For example, electronic publishing. So if I want to create a journal that has stories about growing up in my city, whether it be San Diego or wherever it happens to be, and my students, they write these stories, we put it together in a book, and they're interested. And if after they read it, they have any questions, they can actually go back and communicate with these students. So it's much more dimensional than reading a plain book. It's much more dimensional than just watching a documentary on TV or a movie or so on. It's very interactive and it grows with every iteration. So every time we collaborate on a different activity, for example, there's a program that we've been running since 1996. It's based on the World Fair. You know, there used to be world fairs where people would come and learn about different cultures, different businesses, different ways of dress, and so on. 
And there really are no World's Fairs. So we, in 1996, created a project called Cyber Fair, which was an online World's Fair. And the idea was for students to create virtual exhibits about their local community. And we looked at the curriculum frameworks throughout the United States and from other countries and came up with eight different categories. For example, local history, environmental issues, so on and so on. And then the task was for the students at these schools to collaborate together at the local level to create a virtual exhibit about that school, make it available to all the partner classes. So here we are now, uh, I think this is our 27th year, and we've kept all of these. We have a gallery of these projects, which now go into the tens of thousands of projects over the years. There's a backstory where the school that participate has answered, what was their project about? Why did they choose that topic? What were the technologies they used? What were the challenges they overcame? Who did they involve in the community? You know, what was the learning outcome? So on and so on. So anybody that wants to can go in and look and see if they want to do it, what to expect. So it's just like all these recipes, basically. Just to be blunt about it, why does this matter so much? What's the purpose, in your mind, of fostering these kinds of cross-cultural collaborations? Where the world is right now, you can't watch the news for five minutes where you don't have, you know, opposing points of view. And compromise has sort of become a not cool thing for whatever reason. It's like people dig their heels in and it's got to be this or this. There's no middle ground. But that's not realistic. So teaching students, young people, skills on how to look at different perspectives beyond their own is enormously rewarding and useful. And uh, yeah, I would say that one of the biggest reasons to do this is to connect people that they may not have come in contact with to do some sort of a project together where they can learn more about those people, that culture, that community, that population. Whether it be young people and old people, one of the greatest projects we did was connecting elementary school kids with seniors in senior citizen homes. They were so lonely and they just were looking for something to do. And these young kids would write them letters and you know, ask them questions and these senior citizens would write back and they were so excited to tell them about their lives, their lives before telephones, their lives before TV, that kind of a thing. So then you're saying it's about helping students develop perspective, right? It's about helping students see from an early age that the world is a big, diverse place with room for lots of different beliefs and ideals, as opposed to what seems to be happening, which is kind of the opposite. Absolutely. And that, that is what is so sad to me, is that the technology is more readily available, but it's not being used for the right thing. There was a movement back in the 90s, it was called Net Day. And the purpose of Net Day was to connect different schools and locations. It was all about pulling in the fiber and connect them. And my position was, okay, now what about a what's next day? Once you're connected, what do you use those connections for? And it's like a roller coaster because even today, I mostly see traditional teaching dissemination of information, the teachers on Zoom and talking to the class, you know, and it's just really not digging into this whole potential of collaboration where students are learning to work in a geographically dispersed environment, which are skills they're going to need when they go into the workforce. There's very few jobs in industry where you're not going to be forced to be working in a geographically dispersed environment. So they need to learn those skills. 
And do you think those skills can be developed much earlier on in the classroom? Well, part of my argument is we need to make this a part of the learning experience where there's guided learning, where there's some projects where there's adult supervision. Instead of just throwing teenagers, young people onto the internet, there are lots of negative comments or bullying or this or that. And it's like taking, you know, somebody that's never been to New York City and just dropping them off in the city. You would never do that. You would prepare them. You know, here's what you have to look out for and here's how you keep safe and so on and so on. So even though so much time has passed since I started this, Education is still very slow to be working on this aspect of it. It's sad to say. I mean, there's lots of great and innovative programs. I'm not saying that's true in all cases, but definitely there should be more of it. Yvonne, of course, has been trying to help with exactly that and creating more innovative, collaborative educational programs since the 1980s. And of course, technology has changed a lot along the way. In fact, part of what's amazing about Yvonne's work and why she's such an incredible pioneer in the e-learning space is because of just how far ahead of the technology curve she's been. For example, if you think video classrooms are a relatively new phenomenon, something that's developed since the advent of technologies like FaceTime and Zoom and Google Meet, well, I've got news for you. Yvonne was pioneering video classrooms back before some of you listening might even have been born. In 1992, my colleagues and I were doing collaborative writing projects for almost 10 years at that point, but it was just text. Maybe there were some minimal graphics, but it was just too hard. The phone lines couldn't accommodate big files. In 1992, we got a grant from National Science Foundation to create the first video conferencing educational project. And we use a product out of Cornell University called CUCME. The CU stood for Cornell University. And it was very similar to what we're doing now. Of course, it was a little bit herky-jerky and black and white. But... I can tell you that suddenly when they could finally see people communicating like this, it opened so many different doors. So adding video, adding the live video part makes it that much realer. So as technology has enabled that, I think that's really helping the learning experience. And as we move into even more real experiences, there's some new technology projects that are more immersive that make you feel like you're there, make you feel like you're sitting in the same room and talking with somebody. Out of curiosity, what kinds of technologies do you believe help develop that sense of, quote unquote, in the same room collaboration? I think, you know, the video component, extremely important. The other thing important is being able to do collaborative document sharing, whether it be uh, brainstorming or, you know, writing a grant together or putting numbers in a spreadsheet together. Many years ago, we did a project for Google. It was to have students look at ways that they could address the climate crisis and what things could they do at home that would be more healthy. And it was things like turn the light off when you leave the room, use two sides of a piece of paper, things like that. So we had, I think, about 100 schools participate, and we set up a Google spreadsheet, and the schools were asked to put in their top two ideas, and then everyone ran around and rated them. And then I think the top 50 Google put a big ad in like the New York Times crediting these schools for making these suggestions. So 
It was very real. It was very authentic. They got to learn ideas from different parts of the world, different parts of the country, and things that they could do themselves, calls to action that they could do themselves. Visualization is a big thing right now. Conversely, what are some of the gotchas with online collaboration that maybe don't work so well? Uh, you know, because I think at this point, we've certainly all been in online learning environments or collaboration spaces where it's pretty clear the technology isn't helping further whatever the goals are. So um, from the beginning of online learning, <laughs> where it has not been successful is where it's just a bunch of information and self-paced test, you know, CAI, computer-assisted instruction, kind of like if you've ever had to study for a driver's ed test online, you know, and you go through these questions. There's a lot of that. There's still a lot of it. Some of that is useful, but there needs to be a balance. The other thing is understanding the need for synchronous communication as opposed to asynchronous. There's a lot of exchange of knowledge that doesn't have to be synchronous. I don't want anybody to ever read something to me over video conferencing during real time because that is not a good use of my time. And it makes me very, very unhappy to have to sit there and you ask somebody a question, they go, well, let me tell you the answer. And they start reading. When we do a project, we do a lot of meet the expert and we ask those people to send us ahead of time some background material that we can distribute to the participants. It could be videos, it could be writings and so on, and they can learn about that, right? It really takes a lot of thought to make sure nothing happens during this 40 minutes that couldn't be happening offline. That's a real big part of it. And I think businesses are going through that right now. I mean, I just hear infinite stories about these useless meetings where people are giving reports, standing there and reading some report. These are the latest statistics. Like, no, this is not a good use of our real time. Real time is very precious. Those people that can't participate, how will they benefit from what's going on? Worth noting, by the way, the point Yvonne is making here is critical regardless of whether we're talking about a classroom or a boardroom or anything in between. Just because you have the power to convene people from around the world for a meeting or to collaborate, it doesn't mean you should. As new technologies enable exponentially more collaborative opportunities, it's also important to be judicious about how they're used so they become enablers rather than time wasters. This is something Yvonne has been thinking about for literally decades, a lot longer than most people, certainly. And as the world is starting to catch up with her, she has some thoughts about how the transition toward remote collaboration and learning is going. So I have mixed feelings. I mean, I'm excited that, you know, suddenly there are a lot of people out there that are starting to use these tools. I'm very excited about that. I'm disappointed that those of us that have been in this industry for so long, they're not calling upon us more to help them get organized and make it better. Because I see a lot of people talking about things that, you know, we saw those problems like 10 years ago. So I wish there were more of an opportunity to coach and guide, whether it be the end user, the practitioner, that you know, whether it be the teacher, you know, help teachers use it correctly. Moving to online teaching can be overwhelming for instructors that have only been in the classroom. Suddenly, you know, you're online and you've got 10 times as many students and how do you deal with it? And there's ways to deal with that. There's ways to mitigate that. There's some strategies that we've discovered over all of these years that I think would be really helpful. So my mixed feelings are, I think it's good, but I'm somewhat frustrated that people are still asking the same questions 
And I don't know why. It's like the answers are right there. Let us help you figure it out. This is such an opportunity. What would be one thing you'd want to tell people who are thinking about online learning and innovating in the online learning space? I'm a big proponent of blended learning, not doing it all online. I think that's not a good way to get a complete education. So all of the projects that we develop are blended. So it means the students are doing some sort of offline work. They're doing field work. They're creating graphics. They're creating videos. They're doing whatever offline. And then they're sharing certain parts of that, parts that make sense with their partner classes. Okay. So you're saying online learning isn't about necessarily consistently working with other people. It's about bridging gaps between people to help them learn from each other in kind of uh, whatever ways make the most sense. Is that a good summary of your work with Global School Net over the past uh, nearly 40 years? So um, Global School Net was founded with the idea of creating an online global schoolhouse where People can learn from one another and with one another. And most of the activities that we do are collaborative in nature. So we are always looking for different ways that we can connect learners around different topics. So yes, a teacher can teach whatever subject it is, history, language arts, science. They can do it in a self-contained classroom. But what is the added value of connecting your classroom with other classrooms? It's not that you're going to share every little bit of what you're teaching in that classroom, but there's some things, you know, what's shareable, what would make it more exciting and make it more interesting or create an institutional history. For example, there's a lot of uh, robotic competitions where students go and they create robots and it's really fun and you go and watch it and they have to, you know, solve some problems and there's videos of it, but If you're not there, you don't really learn from it. So what we like to say is if you create these different projects and you archive some of them, you create an institutional history that grows. So each iteration gets better and better because you can look at, well, okay, they did this project and they investigated zoos in different countries and this is what they learned and here's the laws and regulations about environmental protection in California as opposed to other states. So they learn from that. They create some sort of digital story. Okay, that's another big thing that we try to push is that we want students to be able to communicate what they've learned. We want them to tell it in some sort of a story. So it can be a narrated slideshow. It can be a video. It can be a podcast. It can be an audio, whatever. But if you can get students to actually talk about what it is they learned and why it's important. And then you save that. And then the next group of students come by and they look at it and then they build on it. That's very powerful. And that goes back to the origins of the internet. I mean, that's what the internet was originally created was so that researchers could share their research and there wasn't replication of research, move things forward in a very fast way. What Ivan is describing here isn't just about educating students. It's truly the heart of much of the value all of us derive from the internet. It's about having a dynamic, shared knowledge space we all can learn from. Seriously, just for an example, go back and read the memos that Sir Tim Berners-Lee wrote to his bosses when he was initially pitching them the idea for the World Wide Web. 
those memos are all about the value of having a shared, dynamic, collaborative learning environment that we all can contribute to. In fact, that's kind of what this podcast is too. It's my contribution to that shared collaborative learning environment. So I hope you've learned something valuable from this episode. If you have, I hope you'll also take a moment to give us a nice rating and review over on your podcasting app of choice, share webmasters with a friend, and make sure you're subscribed so you get to keep learning from future episodes. In the meantime, I want to thank Dr. Yvonne Marie Andres for taking the time to share her story and the story of Global Schoolnet. If you'd like to see what she's up to, and more importantly, if you'd like to get involved in helping all of her incredible initiatives, you can learn more on their website. It's globalschoolnet.org. If you'd like to share any thoughts, comments, or feedback about this or any Webmasters episode, you can ping us on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. I'm on Twitter too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also create lots of, in the spirit of this episode, let's call it asynchronous educational content about entrepreneurship, videos, articles, newsletters, etc. You can find all of it over on my website. That's AaronDinnan.com. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help bringing together this episode. Thank you to our sponsor, Latonas, for supporting Webmasters. If you're in the market to either buy or sell an internet business, remember to check out Latonas.com. And finally, again, thanks to all of you for listening. We're back again soon with another episode of Webmasters. Until then, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>